One of the reasons it can be valuable to take a day like today and focus on a certain theme like acceptance, or or one of the reasons we're focusing on the theme of acceptance in a day like today, is is a phrase in the Dharma that you'll hear if you're around the Dharma at all for a while, and it's being with things as they are, or accepting things as they are. And that's part of the art of practice, is learning how to be with things as they are, accept things as they are, or be open to things as they are. And if you consider it, you might notice that a lot of the time we're actually, we don't accept things as they are. We don't accept what's happening. We don't, we're not open to what's happening. We, mostly we react to what's happening. And this is a little example. This was from the Chronicle a number of years ago. Um, it was a, a list that had been compiled of actual questions and comments that the Forest Service received from backpackers after wilderness camping trips. So, like, for example, um, somebody wrote, the trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. (laughs) Surprising, given, but... Or, too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spiderwebs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. (laughs) You know... Chairlifts need to be in some places so we can get to the wonderful views without having to hike to them. (laughs) Or, um, please pave the trails so they can be plowed of snow in the winter. Or, this, I like this one, need more signs to keep area pristine. (laughs) (laughs) The intention, there's some good intention in there. And then, of course, a McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. <laughs> and this, this one's really good. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you, but you can hear the reaction to the way things are, the spiders or the hills or the trails or the snow or... You know, as if it shouldn't be that way, or something's wrong with it. If it's difficult, right? We we definitely have a, a, a proclivity in our society for things shouldn't be difficult. They should be easy or fun or good. Or you know, we should come to day of meditation. And it shouldn't be hard. It should be really opening and joyous and heart filling and rewarding and illuminating. And then it's not always like that, you know. And so, what are we going to do? What we what we do, and what we did today, and what we've been doing, like with the rain. Oh, like I wanted to come to Spirit Rock, and it's so beautiful. We could hike during the walking meditations and eat outdoors. And it's not what's happening. It's not reality. And one of the beauties of the Dharma is this teaching of how to come into harmony with the way things are. How to learn to accept the way things are. So what I'd like to do is offer a talk today that has a few of the components that make up our practice, that make up, that's a little template for how to skillfully work with the way things are. And there are three qualities, acceptance being at the heart of it here, but the three qualities I'd like to speak to are openness, acceptance, and intimacy. Openness, acceptance, and intimacy. And they're, they're all connected. They're not really so separate. You know, openness, opening, being open is the precursor to acceptance. You know, we can't accept something if we're not open to it. And we can't be intimate with something we don't accept. 
You know, we can't, it's very hard to be intimate with something we're rejecting. It's not one of the conditions that allows intimacy to flourish. By intimacy, I mean by knowing something very deeply, very closely, very personally. Being open to come to a day like today is the condition for the rest of the Dharma to unfold. Being open to the Buddhist teachings, to what's being offered. Open, openness, openness is, the, is the condition that allows us to begin to contemplate, to consider, to reflect on to investigate, to learn from, and then see what happens as we begin to get more present, accept things the way they are, and learn how to respond skillfully to our life, to reality, to this experience. You know, with the rain today, we've had to be more contained. You know, we've been inside, most people, for the walking meditation, just that. That's a great practice. You know, where somebody asked me right at the beginning, oh, could we open the windows? And I'm like, sure. But if they hadn't asked me, I, would have said, I wouldn't have said anything. A little bit part of my training when I was on retreat, long retreat, one of the Burmese teachers, there used to be these window wars, right? You know, the people by the window wanted them closed, the people in the middle wanted them open. People in the middle would open them. The people who came in later who were sitting by the window would close them. Then in the middle of the meditation, the people who were in the middle would go open them again. And Of course, with a lot of loving kindness towards each other, right? Yeah, right. And he said a really interesting thing. He said, you know, if you come in and the windows are open, leave them open. If you come in and the windows are closed, leave them closed. And what's... And, and I wouldn't say that as a hard and fast rule, like never change, but what it does is it frees us, right? Oh, I don't have to deal with the windows. If they're open, they're open. If they're closed, they're closed. I can live with each. Now, there are certain things... See, I want to be careful here when we talk about openness and acceptance because there are certain things we can't just live with. And I'm not saying we have to live with everything, but there's actually a lot we can live with. Whether the windows open or closed, mostly we can live. That's not life or death. You know, if it's raining and we have to do the walking in very short lanes, five feet, we can do that. And to see that we can do that, not only see that we can do that, but that our well-being is possible even if our circumstances don't offer us what we would like, that's valuable. That's important. That our well-being not be dependent ultimately on external circumstances. So all of this begins with openness. Being open. Open to the teachings. Open to learning about mindfulness. Open to considering, oh, what are, how do we see the world? Or how have we been relating to our feelings or to our bodies or to our minds or to other people? What, is, what does it mean that it's possible to relate with compassion and awareness and wisdom? And you can even notice now the quality of openness in your mind to the talk. Doesn't mean you have to like the talk. Doesn't mean you have to agree with the talk. It simply means, oh, you're open to hearing what's being offered. You're open to the talk. And the openness is a, is, a, is a precursor to your, ultimately, to your response. Maybe later you say, no, I didn't like that talk. That talk wasn't good. Or you would, might say, oh, that was a great talk. Or you might say, there were parts I liked and parts I didn't like. But the openness, being willing to open and accept, hear, be with, all becomes the precondition to our response. 
Um, openness is an interesting quality. If you look around the room, you'll see that it's the there's a certain rooms are characterized by openness. They're defined. They define a certain kind of openness, a spaciousness, right? And we mostly get a little uh, enchanted by the things that fill the space. And we don't see the openness. We don't see the spaciousness that's here. And so partly we want to see the spaciousness of mind, the openness of mind, which is much more the nature of mind itself is open. It gets narrowed. It gets contracted. It gets attached. It gets identified. But when I asked you all to stop being aware, was there anybody who could do it? Right? Where is that awareness? You know, and the right answer. You want you want the right answer? <laughs> There's no right answer. No. One answer is it's nowhere and everywhere at the same time. It's always here, but it's not a thing. Like space or like openness is not a thing. You can't grab it. So to be open, and if you know me at all, you know I like the dictionary. Some of this, most of this comes from the dictionary. To be open means to unclose. Open means to unclose so as to make passage possible. It makes, it it allows movement, openness. There needs to be some level of openness for the teachings to come in and for your response to come out. Or open means to unlock, to remove the covering. I think that's a really good way to think about the uh, of openness that's needed here. That our habitual life closes us down. Conventional life narrows our view, narrows our, our vistas. We end up often taking a really um, defensive, contracted, reified, st- structured uh, a position in response to reality. You know, our bodies get tight, our hearts get locked up. Anybody recognize this kind of just normal human tension, rigidity, the layers of years that accumulate? And so part of what's needed is to begin to open physically and emotionally and mentally. To open means to make known, to make known. And this is what a great deal of our practice is about, is start to see clearly, to know what's happening as it's happening, accepting it allowing it, being present with it, as it is, as we are. Remember, the Dharma is not here to fix you. The Dharma is not a self-help book. The Dharma is here to liberate what's already here, what is our nature, what is uh, innate in us. And so we want to know, we start maybe at the total surface, just the body sitting here breathing, and that can take us all the way to the deepest knowing. The Buddha said in, in, in this fathom-long body, you will find the whole cosmos. The whole cosmos, just here, right? It's already here. Already here. It's already sitting in your seat. It's why we turn the attention in this way to this human, living, breathing human being. Because the whole cosmos, the whole revelation of the, the Dharma's revelation, is, it's not found somewhere else. It's found right here. No matter what size you are, no matter what shape you are, no matter what color you are, no matter what religion you are, no matter what culture you're from, no matter how good you've been, no matter how bad you've been, 
the Dharma is found right in your seat. No matter what anybody's told you about yourself, no matter what you tell yourself, the Dharma is found right in your seat. The whole Dharma, not even just, oh, there's a little bit there, the whole thing. So to make known. Another important, uh, from the dictionary, to open means to burst and discharge as, as uh, if an old wound. And it points us to the healing that can and does take place in the course of Dharma practice. Um, I don't see it here in the upper hall when you're sitting on the, on the stage and you look straight across as a Buddha with a big blue Buddha, I think straight across, one of the Buddhas hanging with a bowl and it's a blue Buddha it's, and it's the healing Buddha. And it points to the healing that comes with mindfulness, with kindness, with compassion, with generosity, with um, the uncovering of our hearts and our nature. And so in that course, in the course of that, we go through uh, a certain kind of uh, rite of passage where the old wounds will come to the surface often the griefs, the sorrows, the hurts, the pain, the distrust, the fear. And they become, in Buddhist language, purified, clarified. Not by trying to be a good person, simply by seeing what's true, simply by staying present. You don't make it happen. It'll happen in and of itself as you stay present. When I I remember my first retreat, I'd already been married and divorced. And I'd, it'd been a while, and I, you know, I was fine, and I went on retreat, and I remember this grief came up, and it was like I thought I was going to retch. Really, it was so strong, and it was so uh, uh, surprising. I didn't know it. And it was just part of the process of letting go. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm trying to work. I wasn't trying to work through something. I was just sitting with what was here. And as we stay present, that's one of the things that comes forward. Sometimes called the kalesas in Buddhism. They, it's like the, it's like a glass of water. It's all shook up and kind of the dirt's everywhere. And as it sits, it, the dirt drops and the water clarifies. And this, it's the other way. The the dirt comes out, or the the pain or the difficulties or the hurt or the contraction releases. And so sometimes you'll even hear Buddhist practice talking about as the, one of my favorite titles is the skill of release. The skill of release. Or freedoms talked about as release or relinquishment. That things let go. That what we bound to and what's bound to us starts to release. Or discharge as it an old wound. Another definition of open is to develop or become receptive as a child's mind. And, and that's actually a beautiful, really beautiful, and quite, often quite pleasing part of practice. When our mind becomes fresh, open, awake, present, we walk out and all of a sudden the rain, oh, it's not the rain from the past. It's not the rain we've always known. No, it's the rain like a child sees the rain. It's like, oh, wow, it's, we don't even know. We don't, we're not defining it based on the past. It's alive. It's fresh now. And it's so satisfying. If you do a long retreat, this always happens. Well, after some days of it being difficult or it's good or bad or whatever, and you walk out and... All of a sudden, it's, it's all fresh. It's all alive. Because, and it's only true because it's all actually always alive. It's always fresh reality. Our eyes get covered over. They get stale. They get... The, the, the freshness gets obscured. But when we're really here... I mean, even just to look at a person, it's even a person we know, we don't actually know them. 
we let go of the concepts and the beliefs or the ideas about Eugene or teacher or man or any of that stuff, it all starts to get a little more interesting in some ways. It's like, well, who are these things sitting out there? <laughs> you know, even the idea human. I mean, that's a, those are all concepts we're laying on reality. And the reality is something's here. And it's quite amazing, quite beautiful, actually. And when we're open, it says in the dictionary, we are ready and free for engagement. So again, the receptivity that we're pointing to is not just passivity. We're ready and free for engagement. And this is the beginning of response. It precedes acceptance, this openness. We're open to the direct experience and we're open to our reactions to our direct experience when we meditate. So if there's a pain in the knee, that's the direct experience. And then my reaction, oh, I hate this pain in the knee. We're open to both of those. You don't have to deny, you don't have to like anything here. Everybody got that? You don't have to like what's happening. In fact, if you try to like it when you don't like it, it won't work. It's inauthentic. But if you can be present with your disliking of what's happening, then you have the power of mindfulness working for you. It will take you beyond liking or disliking. So there'll be the sights and the sounds and tastes and touch and smells and thoughts and feelings and then our reactions to them. And when we talk about being open, we want to be open to all of that. It's very easy and very quickly people start to put on Buddhist ideas about how they should experience things. Like, oh, if I have a pain, I should always be compassionate. Or if I'm sitting, I should always be joyful because not everybody has the opportunity to sit. Those are nice ideas, nice ideals. They're not the way things are. The way things are, are it's like this right now, however it is for you. right? How is it for you right now? Right? It's going to be different for each person here, really different for each person. Can you be with it as it is now? Including your body, your heart, your mind, and, and any reaction you have to it. And accept that as the way things are. Again, as a basis for skillful action, skillful response. And so part of the beauty of Vipassana practice is really learning that we can open and accept everything. Even be open and accept even be open to our lack of openness, even accept our lack of acceptance. And there's a great freedom that comes with this, great freedom. We don't have to be any way. There's a freedom to be that's undefined, that's totally open, totally naked, totally new, totally fresh. Totally real. We get to be real. We're not just empty. Empty doesn't mean there's not something here. Empty means it's empty of precondition, empty of concept, empty of predefinition, empty to experience the reality that's here now, just like it is. Whether it's excited or interested or bored or tired or energized, doesn't matter. This is one of the things as a teacher, it's one of the great learnings as a teacher. People come in for interviews, let's say, when we're up the hill teaching. It doesn't matter what their experience is. (laughs) 
we takes we actually don't care what your experience is. <laughs> no, I don't mean we don't care. That's the wrong way to say it. We don't have a preference for what your experience is. We're curious about how are you relating to it. How are you relating to the experience you're having? Are you judging it or not? Are you open to it or not? Can you accept it or not? And then, once you're with the experience, what it, what's your palette of skillful means to work with that experience? And we want to help as best we can with all of that, and especially the skillful means. So really important to see it's not about being open or being accepting. It's even about being closed and being unaccepting, that we can be open and accept all of that. Thomas Merton put it very beautifully. He said, True love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. True love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. That we can even be with that. And being with that opens the heart. Being with a closed heart opens the heart. It's a paradox. And if we haven't experienced it, it it can sound really strange. But when you learn the, the training of mindfulness and how to sit with your experience, open to it, accept it, allow it, be intimate with it, and see what happens with so-called negative experiences, it's really uh, um, uh, encouraging. It's really exciting to see that freedom is possible not by getting rid of things, but by being with things, by developing this capacity to be. Now, there's a beautiful example of this kind of openness in the Buddhist tradition and the teaching of the Buddha with his son, Rahula. And Rahula, in the story, is about 18. And he's taken robes and he's practicing with the Buddha. And um, there's a situation happens where he's walking behind the Buddha to go get his food alms round, carrying a begging bowl. And he's looking at the Buddha. And he sees the Buddha's kind of handsome and glowing and luminous and, you know, kind of, you know, he looks good, the Buddha. And Rahula, it's his dad, right? So it's not, it's it's kind of personal. It's my dad, the Buddha. And he's thinking, oh, you know, I look a little like him and I'm going to look, I look good like that and da-da-da-da. He's having some certain kind of prideful thoughts about how good he looks and the Buddha looks and how he's, you know, in the lineage directly. And the Buddha turns around and basically admonishes him. You know, he kind of reads his mind and he says, uh, here, I'll actually read you from the sutta. What does he say? He addresses Rahula. Rahula, any form whatsoever that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every form is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment, right understanding. This is not mine. This I am not myself. This is not what I am. So he gives... He gives Rahula a big teaching on selflessness right there. Basically, he says, the body is not self. You know, you're taking pride in your body. You know, it's, it's just the body. You don't have to identify with it. We don't need to go too far in that direction today. But, but it's a basic teaching of looking at what self. Where's the self? Is there a self in the body or not? And Buddha says, no, there's, it's not self. The body is not self. And then he encourages him. And and Rahula, here's what happens. So Rahula realizes he's been admonished a little bit by the Buddha. 
and he decides, I'm not going for alms, alms, alms rounds. I'm going to stay and meditate. You know, you don't get admonished by the Buddha every day. So I'm going to go practice. And he sits down, and then one of the other monks walks by him and says, practice mindfulness of breathing. And then there's a long description of what that looks like, of, of all these different parts of mindfulness of breathing. But basically, he's encouraged to develop a mind that is like the earth. Develop a mind that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Okay? Everybody understand that? Yes? No? Read it again? Okay. Develop a mind that is like the earth, for when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. In other words, all kinds of visitors come to our mind. Images, ideas, memories, feelings, mental states. Some are pleasant and they're agreeable. Some are unpleasant and they're disagreeable. And they have contact, they make contact with the mind and then we have a reaction to them. We want to keep the pleasant ones and get rid of the unpleasant ones. right? We want to keep the agreeable contacts and get rid of the disagreeable contacts, if we use the Buddha's language. The Buddha's suggesting something else. He says, develop a mind that's like the earth and arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. And he goes on to say, just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified or humiliated or disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth, and in this way, these, uh, these contacts, these experiences, these sensory experiences of thought or of image or of feeling, they won't remain. They'll be like the earth. You won't, you won't have a big reaction to them. And he, uses, he expands the metaphor for the kind of mind we want to develop in meditation to include develop a mind like water where everything is received or washed. You know, every, you, people would put in his day everything in the river and it would be cleaned. Or like fire where everything is consumed or burned. That you know, they could, at that time they could put anything, if it was a dirty cloth or an old this and old that, and that, that would be it. It wouldn't stay, it wouldn't stick. Whether it was agreeable or disagreeable, he's trying to encourage this openness of mind that is big. It's a big mind. It's like the earth. It's like water. It's like fire. He continues, he says, it's like the air which blows or touches on all things, irregardless of its form. And then he even considers this a fifth element. These are the four elements of, of earth, air, fire, and water. The fifth element is space which is not established anywhere, which embraces everything and puts everything in context. So he's talking about awareness itself and the nature of awareness, which includes everything. This awareness that we can't stop, right? That's aware. It's aware of what's happening. It doesn't have to grasp the agreeable contacts or push away the disagreeable contacts. It can know them, but it can be open like space or vast like the earth. A spacious openness, a contemplative openness. Nothing excluded, no thing separated out of the matrix of reality to get rid of or to hold on to. Just things arising and passing, appearing and disappearing. From where? I don't know. Going where? I have no idea. You ever try to figure out where things go? Like you asked the question about arising. You know, where were you, where'd your thoughts go from this morning? You know, are they all piled up somewhere now in the thought junkyard? Or 
So can you be open to your experience now? Even if it's not a Buddhist experience. Even if it's just a human experience. Now the Buddha also said, he's got a beautiful phrase that describes mindfulness that I like very much. It's very succinct, it's very simple. He said, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. And in some ways, this is the whole practice. Because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. Because we appreciate ourselves, because we value ourselves, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain Mindfulness, we stay present. We maintain careful self-regard 24-7. And that's our practice. That's, that's the whole practice of compassion, of kindness, of heartfulness, and mindfulness, all in this simple phrase. And this is all we're cultivating, and all this is what we want to cultivate, is this careful self-regard both day and night. Because mindfulness is not a cold or dry practice. If it doesn't have heart, it won't, it won't go too far. You can do it for a while, but human life is too difficult, actually. There's too much suffering. We need our kindness. We need our heartfulness. We need our tenderness. We need our care and carefulness. We need our self-regard. Not in terms of indulging ourselves, but really being kind. Really appreciating what's called in Buddhism precious human birth. This precious incarnation that we've taken for really a very short time, no matter what age we are. Because actually none of us knows when we're going to die. That's one of the big assumptions we generally have, like we're going to live for a long time or forever. Really, that's the unconscious belief. You know, luckily, as we, for those of us who do get older, as we get older, the body starts to let you know it's actually not going to stick around even though you want it to. It starts, you can start to feel it, you know, losing some of its uh, fortitude, some of its youth. And even that, accepting that, it's just the truth of the way things are. It's not personal. It's not, a, it's not a mistake, unless you consider the whole design a mistake, right? What's that term, create intelligent design? Is that the term that is used sometimes? If it's so intelligent, why didn't it make a better thing that might last a while longer? I don't know. So the kindness, the compassion is not just one of the fruits of practice. It's woven into each moment of practice. It needs to be here from the beginning as best we can, as kindly as we can, as graciously as we can, as we turn and really look at this human experience, as we sit with this human experience. Because there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. It's short life. People we love go away. People we don't love stick around. <laughs> that's, that's also dukkha. That's also a form of suffering. That's exactly how the Buddha describes it. Right? Separation from loved one, he says. Being close to those we don't love. <laughs> you know, it's just how it is. <laughs> uh, so we need the kindness. We need the compassion because of the difficulty. And because, as Carl Jung said, he said, the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. Completely. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. To accept oneself completely. The most terrifying thing. And that's all the Dharma's asking of you. Right? Is the most terrifying thing. To accept yourself completely.
one of the radical things that sometimes happens on retreat is people start to see their shadow, their shadow side. Like, look, all of you here are good folks. Nobody, nobody who comes to a day of meditation is like, you know, a bad person, you know. And, you know, you're all good-hearted and good-intentioned and, you know, have a certain amount of integrity and all that stuff. But, but all the other stuff is here, too. <laughs> right? Everybody get that? <laughs> and, you know, sooner or later it'll come out. If you do long practice, all of a sudden you'll see the shadow side. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you'll see the best of human beings. And you'll see the worst of human beings. It's all actually right here. Now again, I don't know if it's piled up right here or etc. But sometimes when the right strings are plucked, you see, oh my God, I could kill, you know, or I could whatever. You see that that's that's possible. And it's why the Dharma is so important because it teaches us about the universals that are true that are here, and then shows us that we don't have to be bound to them. That what we see in the people we, we uh, uh, um, cast aside is actually here also. And it, it will, when we see that, it brings the connectedness with the people who are cast aside or disenfranchised or, or criminalized for various reasons we can start to see that our humanity is not separate from anybody on the planet, actually. Whatever your position is, whatever your politics are, we're all here together. Human beings are all here together. It's all just human beings doing what human beings have always done. And I don't know if this is exactly true, but in Buddhist cosmology, they would say we've already done them all, right? We've all been the worst already in other lives. Who knows? I don't know for sure. But I know that, that there's something here that we, we can see that at times. And so the rejecting of it, the denying of it, you'll often see it gets acted out in some strange way. It's why sometimes certain religious leaders who are so pure, and then you find out, oh, they've been doing this and this and this, and this happens in all traditions, right? You know, where it definitely happened in the Buddhist tradition, you know, certain purity and celibacy, and then all of a sudden there, you hear somebody's been having, you know, an affair with their students. They're supposed to be celibate. It's just the shadow side coming out in some way, shape, or form, because it, it, it has to. And so seeing the shadow side, being open to it, and not having to act it out, is freedom. That's why Jung says the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. Because it's all here. All of humanity is right here. So you could consider, what, what have you rejected today in your experience? Maybe your boredom, maybe your irritation, maybe your simplicity at times, maybe your not knowing, maybe your confusion at times. You know, and the rejection is not always big, it's just a little pushing away or denying or, oh, I don't really want that now. I'll just want this. I've often told this story, but I'll say it again. One of the biggest shadow parts for me was seeing that I was a competitive meditator. (laughs) Hi, I'm Eugene, and I'm competitive. It's true. I was on a long retreat, and I was having a great retreat, and it was going along fine, except a really good friend of mine was on retreat, and I was competing with him. And I'm comp- you know, and you know how you compete in Vipassana. Who can walk slower? Who can eat slower in the eating meditation? 
who's sitting longer. You know, you're sitting in the hall. You know where the other people are who are sitting. My fr- I knew where my friend was. I'd be sitting. <laughs> He's still sitting. I'm going to sit longer. He's still sitting. I'm going to sit longer. And then he leaves. Whew, I can leave now. You know. And so I was suffering in this way. And I talked to, I went and talked to Jack Cornfield. I had an interview, and I was telling him, and I was ashamed a little bit, and I was a little, you know. And he, and he started. He made a joke of it, which is a good thing to do with the judgment around it. He made a joke. He said, "Oh yeah, I see you've been very competitive." And he said he was putting on a little kind of Indian guru accent, and he was playing. And he said, "If you would look, you would see I'm very competitive also." And, you know, I'd known Jack quite a while by then, and I, I knew that about Jack, but I didn't know it about myself. <laughs> but he made me laugh and, and cry a little at the same time because it broke the judgment. And then he gave me the Dharma teaching right there. He just said it while I was laughing, and he said, and you must accept it fully. And, you know, that wasn't what I was expecting to hear next, you know. I was expecting, oh, you should do loving kindness for your friend or something. He said, no, you should accept it fully. And, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good yogi that way. If I get a good teaching, I'll go with it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to roll with this now. I'm going to be totally competitive. <laughs> and, and I did. And what was interesting for me personally is the competitive part fell away so quickly and this deeper, what I'm calling shadow part, came forward, which was really like, oh my God, this is so bad. You know, oh, I'm not supposed to feel any of this. But then really allowing myself to feel it and, the, and stay present and be with the energy of it, it was totally freeing. And then the content part of it, the contracted part of it, also released. And what I was left with was this tremendous amount of energy and then that energy I could just put into the meditation practice. Or some people, they reject or deny or have difficulty accepting their neediness, like feeling needy. How many people really think that's a good thing? Huh? <laughs> right? I mean, that's like the, one of the worst things in our society is to feel needy. We're supposed to be independent and autonomous and competent. And we can take care of ourselves and we don't need anybody. Right? We're Americans. We don't need those French or those Germans or those... We don't need... We, you know. And so to, to start to open to neediness and to feel it and be aware of it is really not so easy to accept our neediness for some of us. Or, um, you, know, you know, of course, I'm just still describing myself, of course, you know. And then um, uh, some people on, on retreats, actually this isn't mine because I have an easy time with this, some people it's the lack of concentration that's hard to accept. Like they just want to get concentrated. And, and it doesn't happen sometimes. And it might not have happened today. Like maybe your mind was kind of bubbling all day. Can you accept that? The lack of concentration or collectiveness that might be true for you today without making it like you're a bad meditator or your meditation's always going to be like this. No, that's just the way things are now, today. Some people have a funny shadow side in terms of... Some people, it's hard for them to accept their sweetness. You know, we think, oh, that's a good thing, or their, or their tenderness, or their, or their heartfulness. But some people have more of an identity of being tough or, you know, n- not having those kind of feelings. And so to feel that can be hard. To accept that can be difficult. And we could go on and on, aggression. And it's, all, it's different for each person. But it's a, it's a worthy reflection to see what is it, what is it that is hard for you to accept about yourself? And then what happens if you accept it? That's the radical. 
way to play. Okay, I see. I haven't been accepting my competitiveness. What if I accept it totally? Wow, that's interesting. What if I'm not accepting my, you know, tension, but I accept it? And by accept it, I mean feel it, get present, be open to it, allow it, breathe with it, and stay present and see what happens with it. This is mindfulness practice. This is kindfulness practice. And, you know, sometimes we think, uh, like in Buddhism, there'll be a certain idea, um, certain things aren't allowed, like, um, where is it? Like thoughts are bad. We shouldn't think. We should get rid of thoughts. This is from the Shinshin Ming. Shinshin Ming is um, it's a great Zen text from the third Zen ancestor. And um, Shinshin means the mind of absolute trust. The mind of absolute trust. Somebody was talking with me about trust. Who was it? Where are you? Yeah. The mind of absolute trust is the name of this text. And, And it's a beautiful text. It begins, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. Or, uh, or the retranslation, more recent retranslation by the same person, more accurate, less poetic, but more accurate, is the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. Right? You hear the difference? First one's very poetic. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But of course, everybody has preferences. So then he retranslated it more appropriately, really. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. And in the, in the Shinshin Ming, it said, if you wish to move in the one way, one way meaning enlightenment, if you wish, wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. To accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. And so this is the paradox that we're given, is how to work with the mind, with the heart, with the body, without rejecting any of it, accepting all of it. And that acceptance goes so deep that it's liberating. Here's a quote from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, talking about acceptance as the Dharma gate, as how deep acceptance can go. He says, we need to let go, to rest, just be. We need to accept what is, not just mentally, but with the whole of our being, intimately, in this way. He says, acceptance of my experience of myself means being here now without manipulation. The more I accept, the more I am in the present, the more I'm in the present or wanting to achieve, or the more I'm in the future or wanting to achieve, even wanting acceptance, the less I am accepting myself. Acceptance feels like taking a risk. It's like jumping off a cliff. I accept the more I trust in reality. It's a quantum leap for there are no securities, no guarantees. When this state of abandon is realized, I find that I am alive as if for the first time. It is the first time. I am alive, awake, bodhi, as the Buddhists say. It happens whenever I accept myself, let go of preconceptions, and just be. The more I accept, the more I die, and the more alive I am. The more I accept, the more I die and the more alive I am. Total acceptance with the entirety of my being is complete death, and the complete death of the manipulative ego is full rebirth, awakening. This points us to the possibility, to the power of acceptance, of being open to our experience, of accepting it fully, of landing in our experience fully whether it's an experience that's agreeable or disagreeable, that's pleasant or unpleasant. Our our value is not about, our security is not, I'm not saying this, let me see if I can get it right. 
What we value is not based on an experience being pleasant or secure. It's about the possibility of liberation and freedom through any and every experience. And that's why we hold ourselves dear carefully day and night. Why we pay attention and practice mindfulness moment by moment by moment. 24-7. Because each experience, each moment has the possibility of awakening. It's not just the day long at Spirit Rock. It's when you go home. It's in the car, actually. It's when you go home tonight. It's in your bed when you're falling asleep, when you wake up in the morning, at work, with your partner, with your family. Can we be present? Can we accept and see what's true in the moment? Now, this, what Hamid pointed at, he says, we need to accept what is not just mentally, but with the whole of our being, with the whole of our being, body, heart, and mind. And this is the quality of intimacy that comes as we really accept things and get more present, as we're more here, as we land more fully in the present moment. It's not an abstraction. It's not, oh, I'm sitting up here and paying attention. It's a totality. It's a unity of experience that's illuminating. It's the coming together of body and mind and heart that is intimate and is awakening. Remember, there's a famous Zen quote from Dogen. He says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or let go of the self. To let go of the self is to awaken with all things. And this, this last line is often translated, to, to let go of the self is to be intimate with all things. That when self-concern is in abeyance, has fallen away, we're open to everything, to everyone, to each moment, fully, intimately. As I said before, the world comes alive when we're here. The world, we, we begin to see the world freshly, clearly, three-dimensionally, four-dimensionally, as the trance of our history, of our conditioning, of the mundane begins to fall away. And reality reveals its inherent beauty, its inherent luminosity, its inherent uh, radiance of this mysterious radiance that's here now. That's just speaking and listening here right now. It's not just in any one seat. It's in every seat. This consciousness, this is awareness that can't stop being aware. But it's really important that we touch, we land fully that we touch things deeply. This is from... um, And so what's implied in intimacy is a deep contactfulness, an engagement that's contactful, that's immediate, that's alive. You know, if we... we, Even the conventional understanding of being intimate, we usually usually use it to describe when we're intimate with somebody, we're lovers with them. That's often one of the ways the word intimate is used. And, you know, one of the things about when we're especially first intimate with someone is how fresh it is, how new it is, how alive it is. We don't know them. We don't even know ourselves in that situation exactly. The freshness is so real. And we're interested and we're, we're awake you know, we don't really say, after we've been married 15 years, we don't say, oh, I'm intimate with that person. We don't say it in the same way. We often say it in the newness and the freshness and the aliveness of a new relationship. Oh, we, we're intimate now. 
after 15 years, we just say, oh, we're married, or, you know, it's, it's a little different. But it's this kind of, part of the reason why I believe we like new, the new possibilities of relationship is because of how fresh it is, because of how alive it is, because of how present we are there. It's not just the other. We often think, oh, it's the other person. They're it. You know, and, you know, they're okay for six months or a year, and then they just turn into another relationship you've got to work with and deal with. And I mean, they're all, they're all great, right? I don't mean to say they're not, but it's not the same as in the beginning when you think it's all about them. But we don't see that it's our own presence that we love and being present in this way and being awake in this way. Anyhow, all of this is a prelude to talking about um, the contactfulness that's important even as we sit here with our experience. This is from a woman teacher in India named Devi. Uh, She's describing people who say, I've had trouble letting go. She says, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness, full awareness, with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch, a profound contact with things, with the universe, without mental commotion. Everything begins there, touching, opening, accepting the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. And this is sometimes we hear that letting go is a good thing, so okay, I'm going to let go of that. I'm really pissed, but I'm going to let go of it. I'm still pissed, but I'm going to let go of it, you know. Or I'm sad, I'm really sad, but I'm going to let go of it. I'm not going to be sad. It'll actually, that's problematic. It will bring on, as she says, mental turmoil. It'll, it'll bring on an inner conflict, basically. She says, many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never open. They enter into a sterile void and remain in prison. When you touch deeply, when you open to your experience fully, when you accept what's here with the totality of your being, you no longer need to let go. That happens, that occurs naturally. This is the mysterious and paradoxical nature of the power of awareness, the power of mindfulness. That letting go happens naturally when we cease to resist what's happening here. So I think it's time to end. I want to end with a quote from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj was one of, another great teacher of India last century. Jack Cornfield studied with him for a while. He said, he said Nisargadatta was the freest man he'd ever met. The freest man he'd ever met. And during the day, he sold beadies. Everybody know what beadies are? No, beadies are these little Indian cigarettes. They're wrapped in their kind of cone-like shape. Very good if you like to smoke. You know, when I was a kid, I smoked beadies a little bit. And, uh, uh, and the, during the day, that's what he was a beadywala. He sold cigarettes on the street. And then at night, he would teach his Dharma classes, and that's where Jack studied with him. And Nisargadatta said, he said, by being with oneself, by observing, by paying attention, being mindful with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, simply because it is there, you allow the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its energies. This is the great work of awareness. By being with oneself, by observing with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, simply because it is there, you allow the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its energies. This is the great work 
of awareness. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Um, we'll take about um, 15 minutes for walking meditation, standing meditation, stretching meditation, as you wish. And then we'll come back, we'll sit for a few minutes, and then we'll have a little discussion about practice the day as we head towards the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.